Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Tim Boom, Promise of God by Mike Evans with permission of Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 14. While love and romance dominated our household, tensions rose across Europe as political pressures increased from many groups demanding reform of monarchies that ruled most European nations. Women demanded the right to vote and enjoy the same social freedoms afforded men. Though less militant, those favoring democracy in many places sought to minimize the power of the monarchy by strengthening the legislature and adding a prime minister to serve as head of government. Communists and socialists want to end monarchy governments altogether. Every edition of the newspaper brought reports of protests in the streets of all the major cities. Constitutional monarchy became the watchword of the day. For those of us who loved the queen and trusted her to do the best for all, anarchy seemed ready to overwhelm us. In response to the growing unrest, monarchs throughout the continent began spending more and more on national defense. This was particularly so for those who felt threatened by the widespread push for change. Our own Queen Wilhelmina, though not opposed to change, was no different from those others in that respect, and increased spending too. With extra money in the economy, business at the Tin Boom Watch Shop was good. As other groups agitated for change, Jews became more vocal and active in the drive for better living conditions. Long the objects of oppressive policy, they wanted an end to many of the social restrictions placed upon them. Some were calling for the creation of Jewish political state in Palestine and the reestablishment of the nation of Israel as a political entity. Rallies were held in various cities around Europe. One was planned that summer for Amsterdam. A few days before the rally was to take place, Rabbi Prenz came by the shop with Sham Wolfsham, a professor from Manchester University in England, a current leader of the Zionist organization the largest of the several groups leading the call for a new Israel. He and Papa became friends immediately. Rabbi Prince had told me of your interest in Israel, Wishon had said heartily, and of the Jews here in Harlem. God's chosen people are still his chosen people, Papa replied. This is not a concept many of your fellow Christians are willing to embrace. Sadly, Papa nodded, you are correct. I understand you and your family pray every day for the peace of Jerusalem. Wafsham had a questioning look. Is that true? Yes, Papa nodded again. We have done so for almost a hundred years. But not Casper personally for that long, Prince laughed. Oh, no, Papa said with a chuckle. I'm just getting old, but not that old. It began with my grandfather and then my father, and we have continued that prayer in a line of intercession that reaches all the way to my children. Every morning we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for God's blessing on the Jews. I was wondering, Wafsham said, could you tell me why you do this? We're told to. It's right there in the Psalms. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper. We love you. David exhorted his people to do that, and we are doing it still. We are glad for the support, but we need more good men like you to help us, non-Jews who will speak up and act on Israel's behalf. There are some heroes sympathetic to the Jewish cause, Prince added. Though I think some support us because they think if we had a state in Palestine, we would all leave here and go there, and they'd be rid of us. Tell me something, Papa leaned back in his chair. If you had this new state, how many people do you think would actually go there to live as full-time residents? Wafshan sighed. That's difficult to say. We were driven from our land by the Romans almost 2,000 years ago. Since then, we have wandered the world without a home. Some settled in Spain, 
others in the area that is now Poland. Yet though we've been in Europe almost as long as anyone, still we are treated like outcasts. I do not know how many of our people would actually move there immediately, but I think that number would grow as they saw it as a place where they could worship and live in freedom, without the prejudices and hatred that we endure now. I agree, Papa nodded, and I think God agrees with you too. Their visit lasted almost an hour, and when Prince and Washam were gone, Papa and I went on our morning walk. He had work to do at the shop. Interesting Khan's watch business had ebbed, helped along by news that his prices did not match the quality he offered. But the morning walk that we had added to our routine to fill up the slack time back then had become part of our normal routine. It was an enjoyable break from the sometimes tedious work of watch repair and gave Papa a chance to see people who didn't normally come to the shop. As we made our way over the four-block route that encompassed our neighborhood, we came upon Ralph Ammerling, a policeman who patrolled the streets near our house. He paused as we drew near and he waited for us to reach him. I could tell by the look on his face that he wanted us to stop. Papa tipped his hat as if to pass him by, but Ralph spoke up. Mr. Tinboom, I understand you had a visitor this morning. We have many visitors, Papa replied with a smile. That's the point of having a shop. Rabbi Prince came by to see you. As he does every week, is that a problem? No, Rabbi Prince is a fine fellow, but we've had some questions about the man who is with him this morning. Wafsham? Yes. What kind of questions? Some people are saying he's here to organize the Jews for a revolt. The normal blue of Papa's eyes turned to Hazel. I knew he was upset. Anyone who'd say that, he replied, hasn't taken the time to talk to him. That's probably true, Ralph chuckled. Do you know why he's in town? He's trying to organize support for the creation of the Jewish state. They're having a rally in Amsterdam next week. Then he looked at Ralph in the eye. Just who exactly have you been talking to? I'm not sure I can say. So, Papa said with a hint of indignation, you can stop me on the sidewalk and ask me questions that bemerse the name of a man you never met, and do so at the insistence of someone else, but you can't tell me who it is that's making these accusations? Ralph glanced around, checking to see if anyone was watching, and then leaned closer and said in a low voice, Irene Dribble. Dr. Brunner's formal nurse, I asked. I'm afraid so, Ralph replied. She's just angry because she wasn't hired by Dr. Van Veen when he took over Dr. Brennan's practice. That's probably true, Ralph nodded. But she found out about your visitors and came straight to the station. Spent an hour talking to the desk officer. So, he shrugged, I have to talk to you. Well, you've done your talking, Papa said with a dismissive gesture. I'm sorry, Mr. Timboom, Ralph continued. I'm just trying to do my job. Look, Papa said with a hint of frustration, I've known Rabbi Prince longer than you've been alive. His character is above reproach. Ralph nodded. I would concur, but... And, Papa said without giving Ralph a chance to continue, I didn't spend much more than an hour with this Walsham fellow, but I'd say he's straight, too. As for the revolution, perhaps you should inquire as to whether Mrs. Dribble has taken to strong drink. And then Papa tipped his hat, and with a curt, Good day to you, officer, he led me up the street. When we were a safe distance away, I turned to him, my mouth agape and my eyes wide, Papa, I've never heard you talk like that about anyone. Mrs. Drubble was always a busybody, he growled. But you suggested she was given to strong drink. Maybe someone should look into it, he said with a mischievous smile. You never know what you might find. But you don't know that for a fact, do you? Rather like suggesting to Well that Khan's selling second-rate watches at first-rate prices. Oh, Papa, I giggled. That was different. Not as much as you think. 
I wanted to know more about Mrs. Drebble, but I knew better than to press the issue right then. The rally in Amsterdam was held as planned, but without Papa's presence. Although it was widely publicized, it was not well attended as organizers had hoped, primarily because events surrounding other issues overshadowed it. Political tension, already running high, reached a fever pitch over the emerging Serbian nationalism. Within weeks, we received reports that Franz Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria, had been killed by a Serbian gunman as part of an ill-fated attempt to pry Slav provinces from the Australian-Hungarian Empire. Papa was certain that would be enough to push everyone into war. They have all mutual defense treaties, he worried. Supposedly, it would keep them from being able to fight, but I think the opposite is true. They will be compelled to fight. His words proved prophetic. In July, the Austrian-Hungarian army invaded Serbia. Soon, all Europe was plunged into war with Great Britain and France, leading the Allies into battle against the central powers of Germany, Austria, Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and the Bulgaria. Everyone assumed the Netherlands would join the war on the side of the central powers, but Queen Wilhelmina declared our neutrality. We were relieved, as it meant there would be no conscription of soldiers which in turn meant William wouldn't have to face the dilemma of whether, as a minister of the gospel and a candidate for ordination in the church, he should serve or declare himself as a conscientious objector. As one of their first acts of war, the Allies established a blockade to prevent supplies from reaching Germany. In spite of the Netherlands' neutrality and the protest of the Queen, our ports were included in that blockade. Ships attempting to travel to and from our coastal cities were seized. The flow of goods into the country shrank dramatically, and before long, shops in Harlem experienced shortages. Many of the everyday items we had come to expect were difficult to obtain, and the economy took a turn for the worst. Business at our shops slowed even more than when Khan came to town. In spite of the war and the hardships it brought, William and Teen continued to see each other on a regular basis, with William coming home two and three times each month. That winter, to no one's surprise, he proposed and she accepted. The wedding was set for May. Corey, of course, was swept up in the romance of the moment. With the war raging, fabric and sewing notions were in short supply. But Famka Jensen, who owned a millinery shop down the street from us, had connections to fabric merchants in Austria, and they were able to get a bolt of silk. She had known William since he was a baby and offered the fabric to us at cost. Even so, it was still expensive, but we scraped together enough money to pay for it and thought of it as a gesture of support for William and Teen. With the material, Aunt Anna and I made dresses for us all and a handkerchief for Papa to tuck into the pocket of his suit jacket. When we worked on the dresses and gathered ideas for wedding service, Corey chattered, slipping seamlessly between talk of wedding and of carol, occasionally blurring the distinction between the two. More than once I was certain she'd lost track of just whose wedding we were planning. Several times I wanted to suggest that she find a different subject for conversation. But each time I tried to speak, Mama cut me off with a look that I should keep quiet. On those occasions when I was not looking for her signal, Aunt Annie pressed her foot against mine in a not-so-gentle manner, followed by a shake of her head. On the morning of the wedding, I helped Corey dress and prepare her hair. She was even more excited than before. She could hardly sit still, and all the while she talked of Carol. Do you know for certain Carol is coming? I asked in hope of somehow breaking the verbal stream long enough to make her think. His last letter said he was. When did that arrive? Two weeks ago. You've been writing to him every day? Yes. 
And he writes you every day? I knew the answer but didn't want to admit it. No, she replied, usually about every two weeks. I know, he, she added hastily. I, I wrote more often, but he's busy with school. So you haven't heard from him in two weeks? No, but I can't imagine that he would miss the wedding. He's one of William's friends. She continued to talk about him, though at a somewhat slower pace than before, telling me what Carol had said in his letters, the things they had in common, and all the wonderful character qualities he possessed. Once or twice she slipped into comments about what she wanted for her own wedding, and I was certain she had convinced herself that she and Carol would soon be married. In the afternoon, William and team were married at St. Bavo's Cathedral. Mama, Aunt Anna, Corey and I appeared in our silk dresses, and though they were all cut from the same fabric, we looked quite fashionable. As Corey expected, Carol attended the wedding, and from what I could see was impressed by the way she had rather obviously blossomed into an attractive, eligible young woman. After the service, we all walked together down to the house where Carol visited with us until late that evening. When it was time for him to leave, Corey walked with him downstairs while Mama, exhausted and coughing, went to bed. Aunt Anna and I straightened up the dining room and then turned to the dirty dishes in the kitchen. Carol seemed quite the charming guest, she said, baiting me for the familiar topic. Yes, I replied while I decided whether to take the bait. He was quite the gentleman. Are you still worried about him? No, I said, shaking my head. Betsy and Anna cut her eyes at me. Tell me the truth. Okay, I sighed, giving in one more round of Corey and Carol. I'm not worried about him. I'm worried about Corey. Why? She's just so infatuated with him. She's not even thinking about this in rational terms. And that's wrong? I know, I know. It's a matter of the heart, not the head. But I just think she's looking right past the obvious and seeing what she wants to see. The obvious? He's almost finished with college. She just finished with secondary school. He's five years older than she, and... She's a beautiful young girl, Aunt Annie said, interrupting me. He's a handsome man. She's supposed to be infatuated with him. Yes, but there's something about Carol I don't like. You've made that more than abundantly clear. I just want what's best for Corey, and I don't want to see her hurt. Listen, Aunt Annie said, resting her hand on my shoulder. I agree. Not everything about him adds up, but I think we must let Corey deal with that part. We must respect her feelings and give her some space. I'm just afraid she will end up terribly hurt. She still thinks of this as a page from a romance novel. Yes, Aunt Annie nodded. She may end up with a broken heart, but she can recover from that. If we intervene, she'll be hurt by us, and I'm not certain she would ever get over that so easily. Just then I heard the door close downstairs and Corey's footsteps coming slowly up the stairs behind me. I glanced over my shoulder as she appeared in the doorway, and from the smile on her face I knew what had happened as they said goodbye. We'll find out next time what happens on Chapter 15. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.